Well, as Nate read earlier, we'll be in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Surely you've heard the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play. That phrase illustrates for us the, the sort of common to man temptation to live and to obey authority only, only for eye service. Only when the boss is around will I work hard. Only when the master is here. It's a common temptation that the Bible warns against. In the text that we're looking at today, Jesus addresses this on, on a more cosmic scale. Not about your work, but about your life. Jesus is going away physically, and he wants to challenge his followers. While I'm away, again, physically, while I'm away, remain faithful. Remain faithful until I return. Now, Jesus is not just a mere boss or a mere master. He is a son of God who will be enthroned in heaven and will soon return to exercise that authority on earth. So here's the point this morning. All are responsible to Jesus. All are responsible to Jesus. So be faithful. Be faithful until he returns. And to me, that's comforting. It doesn't say, it doesn't say be amazing. It doesn't say be popular. It doesn't say be influential. It doesn't say ha ha be completely put together. It says be faithful. Be faithful. So as we look at the text this morning, We'll, we'll see that this idea is, is, kind of comes together as we walk through Jesus' reason for the parable and then the parable itself. And so he starts by teaching that there will be this interval of time between his receiving the kingdom and its consummation here on earth, or his receiving the kingdom and his coming back in all authority to rule and reign on earth. And so point number one in those first couple of verses, there will be an interval of time between the receiving of the kingdom and its consummation. Look there in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now we know contextually that Jesus is in Jericho. He, he's, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Fitting, uh, according to the theme of our passage, just outside of Jericho, Jesus had been recognized as the son of David, the coming king who will rule forever on David's throne. And now we get one final parable in this, this, this travel narrative where Jesus in chapter 9 set his face to Jerusalem. This is the last parable in this section of the Gospel of Luke. And we're alerted in the text there in verse 11 that the timing of this parable is not accidental. The fact that Jesus is near to Jerusalem becomes critical for understanding what Jesus is saying. We saw it there in verse 11. He told them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because many assumed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Well, how are these two ideas related? What would Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem spark in the mind of some in this crowd as it pertains to the kingdom of God? Why would these two things go together? Well, for, for many who were convinced that Jesus is the son of David, like the blind man, 
that he is the Davidic king, that he is the promised one, they were assuming that as Jesus marched into Jerusalem, it was to overthrow Roman rule and to establish the physical reign on earth of the Messiah. He's going to regather scattered Israelites, and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, not only over Israel, but, but he will be this king over all kings, and, and the nations will come to him to be judged, and he will rule over them. Now think about the words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 3. This is, this is why they believe that Jesus was going to march in Jerusalem and do this, because Jeremiah chapter 3 and other texts say, At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord, where? In Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. So there will be this king that's ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. The nations will come to him, and he will purify the people. So there were many that believed that Jesus' march into Jerusalem is, is the time of this fulfillment. Once the king, King Jesus, marches into Jerusalem, God's going to wrap up salvation history. He's going to fulfill Jeremiah chapter 3. He's going to consummate the kingdom. And he's going to fulfill the, 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 the word of Jeremiah, the word of the prophets. In fact, the disciples, we, we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, they've been con continually confused about this. Right? That's why they, they failed to comprehend the predictions that Jesus has made, three explicit statements, other more veiled statements, that he is going to Jerusalem in order to die. Well, how does that fit with Jeremiah 3? They couldn't comprehend it. He said multiple times it is necessary for him to be killed. Not that it might happen, but that it is necessary for him to be killed and to rise again. And this statement was hidden from them. They could not understand it. In fact, they went so far as to begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest. Right? Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to set up this kingdom. I want to be the greatest. Well, I want to be the greatest too. So they start fighting about it because they assume that this is what is about to happen. In fact, even after Jesus' death and resurrection, confusion still abounds, even on the part of the disciples. If you just flip a few pages over to chapter 24. In verse 21, Jesus is walking this road with a couple of followers of Christ. They don't recognize Jesus. And when Jesus asks them what they're talking about, I, you know, one of the most ironic passages in Scripture, they say, are you the only one that doesn't know? In verse 21, they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Man, we really thought he was this king. But he's been put to death. Even in, even in Acts chapter 1, you know, Acts should really be after Luke, but flip over to Acts chapter 1. I say that because Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. Look what they say in chapter 1, verse 6. 
So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, if Jesus were sarcastic like me, he would say, remember when I told you that parable? I didn't mean like 40 days, all right? It's going to be a little bit of time in between. By Acts chapter 3, this is following the day of Pentecost. They seem to have a better grasp that there will be an interval of time between the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the consummation of this kingdom on earth. Look there in verse uh, 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So by chapter 3, verse 20, they seem to understand there, there, there's, there's an interval here. Repent and prepare yourself because Jesus is going to be sent and these times of refreshing that were promised by the prophets, they will be fulfilled. And so what the disciples can't see now, and Jesus is setting out to teach them, is that the passion of Christ must precede the return of Christ. And not only that, but, but, but the expectations that they have for when the kingdom will be fulfilled and how the kingdom will be fulfilled, it will not happen on their expected timeline. So this parable, in some ways, we, we might say is Jesus managing expectations setting their expectations to what is true and right instead of what they had thought and, and, and assumed. He wants to correct those wrong assumptions of those who were expecting a, a, a militaristic walk into Jerusalem to overthrow Roman rule and to restore Israel as a nation. And so as we dive into the parable, then that verse 11 sets the stage for the purpose of the parable. Right? We have to keep this purpose in mind. He begins the parable in verse 12. And so he, he, he tells the story of a, a nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he's going to come back. So he's going to go into a far country, receive the kingdom, and then he's going to come back. And that idea of, of going away to get a kingdom sounds Weird to us. You know, we, we don't have a lot of historical understanding of why would you leave to become king back. That sounds weird. But historically, this, this was not uncommon in Rome. In fact, Herod the Great had died in the city of Jericho, right where Jesus is when he's telling this parable. And he be, it was his desire, it was his will upon his death that his, his rule would pass to his son, Archelaus. But the decision wasn't ultimately up to Herod. Archelaus had to go to Rome to get the power from the Caesar to come back and to rule. And so he, he goes to a far country, Caesar gives him the stamp of approval, and he comes back and he exercises the authority in Judea and the surrounding areas. And those in Jericho, would have, they would have understood this. They would have known this. And you can imagine that that, that, that trip that, that Archelaus had to take from Jerusalem to, to Rome and to come back 
right? You could probably fly in six hours today. But in Jesus' day, that would have taken a, a significant amount of time. In the same way, this, this noble man, he's going to go away to a far country. And it's going to take him a little bit of time. It'll be a while. I mean, even after receiving the kingdom, it would take somebody a, a while to make that return trip. So even after receiving the kingdom, even after being conferred with the authority, it's going to be a little bit. It's going to be a little bit until he gets back. So then how do, we, how do we understand verse 12, which is a parable, in light of verse 11, which is Jesus' stated purpose for the parable? How does a nobleman going into a far country to receive a kingdom and return relate to Jesus' concern? Some of you think this kingdom is going to appear immediately. Well, we'll see even in the, in the coming weeks that Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem with shouts of, Blessed is the King who has come in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they'll shout. We said he's been recognized as the Davidic king, the son of David. And he wants them to understand, this is a true statement about me. The blind man was right, I am the son of David. This crowd, when I walk into Jerusalem, they're right, I am the king. But that does not stop what I said is going to happen. I'm going to die there. I'm going to be resurrected. And I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And there's going to be this interval of, of time, this chunk of time between the ascension and the return of Christ. And upon his return, that rule will be established on earth. So from our perspective, right, we live in that chunk of time. So we would say presently Jesus has gone into a far country. And I'm going to argue he's, he's received the kingdom, but we are awaiting his return when he will rule and reign on earth in what we call oftentimes the millennial reign of Christ. This is, this is consistent with what we've seen about the kingdom in Luke. Jesus said, hey, it's in the midst of you. It's here. But also pray that it comes. Pray that God's will would be executed on earth the same way that it's executed in heaven. In addition, well, why would I say Jesus has received the kingdom? Like the nobleman. He's just not come back yet. Well, following the resurrection, what did Jesus tell the disciples? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been granted to the Son. He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's been given the name above every name. That's happened. The apostles tied the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus to his enthronement by, by tying it together with Psalm 2. If you have time, you might want to read Psalm 2 this afternoon and then think in Acts, the disciples more than once tie Psalm 2 to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. So I'm arguing that Jesus has gone to a far country and he's received the kingdom and we're waiting for him to come back. He's enthroned. He's defeated his enemies. He's marched the, you know, the, the spirits in just utter defeat and shame. But he's in a far country. He's in a far country. And it will be a while until he gets back. 
That's what I, I think Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand. There's going to be some time there. And when he does, when he comes back, he's bringing the fullness of that authority with him. So therefore, there's this need for Jesus to begin to prepare his followers for that time. For the time in between his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his return. And so the question that the parable then teases out next is, well, what does Jesus expect of his followers in that interval of time? And that's point number two, the aim of Christ's servants in this time is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. Look there in verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. So before the, before the nobleman leaves to go into a far country to receive the kingdom and then come back, he gathers ten of his servants. And the, t- the text says he gave them ten minas, right? That is one each. Okay, ten servants, ten minas, they all get, they all get one. Now, um, a mina, what's, what's that? It's, it's money. It's currency. You know, this is similar to the parable of the talents. And I remember being a, a young Christian reading the parable of the talents and thinking, oh, he's giving me like talents. I don't know what they are yet, but I'll figure out one day what I'm talented at. Well, no, talents is money and a mina is money. A mina would be like three to four months worth of income. You know, it's no, I mean, it's not chump change, but it's not like the 10,000 talents that Jesus says, you have to forgive, or you've been forgiven. So it's not chump change, but it's not winning the Powerball either. The idea is that each servant would then steward what's been entrusted to them. They would engage in business while he is gone. And at the point that the master returns, he'll, he'll gather them together and see, see how faithful they've been with what he has entrusted to them. That's what it said in verse 14. He ordered the servants to come before him and he would see what they had gained by taking the money that he'd given them and see, well, what did you do with it? Now he's in the, in the parable. He goes away. He comes back. He's returned to, to fully administer his rule in the land. And they're assessed. They're called before him. And the first guy comes and he says, I've made a thousand percent. Don't you wish your financial guy could do that? I've made a thousand percent profit. You gave me one mina, I've got ten now. And the master's reply is interesting there in verse 17. He he first commends the servant. 
Well done. Right? Well done, good servant. Then he gives the, the reason behind the commendation. What is it? Oh, you've made me a lot of money. You've made me rich. No, the reason for the condom, uh, not condemnation, commendation, they mean the opposites. You have been faithful. The reason he commends the work of the servant is his faithfulness. And then he rewards him. You've been faithful over little. I will make you faithful, or I will give you authority over ten cities. The second guy comes, and he's done pretty well. He made a 500% profit. and He's given authority over five cities there in verse 19. And so we don't hear the well done, but it's a similar job, similar reward. He's been faithful. These first two guys took advantage of the time and the responsibility that was entrusted to them, and they are commended and rewarded for it. Now, we'll sort of come back to this reward in a minute, but for right now, notice that the the reward so far exceeds their labor. Right, the, re- the reward is so much greater than what they actually did. These guys didn't even put their own money on the line. They simply took what was given to them and invested it, and now they get authority over 10 cities. All they did was take what was given to them, lay the profits at, at the feet of their master. They weren't really amazing. They were just faithful. They were just faithful. And so what Jesus is is setting out to do is to prepare his disciples for this time. They needed a a, a proper understanding of what to expect, not only what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem, and not only what salvation history will look like, but they needed to know what was expected of them when he goes to a far country, so to speak. And the expectation is that they be faithful with all that they will be entrusted with. Be faithful. Fulfill your God-ordained responsibilities. And so what are those things? What are those things that were, were entrusted to the disciples? Well, our text doesn't say it's a parable about money. But from what we can gather from the rest of Luke and even Acts, we might mention a few of these things that were entrusted to the disciples. One, Nate prayed this way this morning. They were entrusted with a divine commission to preach the gospel to all the nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, they were to preach there, and then they were to branch out and continue branching out until the gospel went to the nations. They were to preach that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and there's forgiveness available in His name. That there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. They were to go and they were to preach that message. They were entrusted with that. They were entrusted with sound doctrine. They were entrusted with good, sound doctrine that they were given by God through the Holy Spirit that they were, by God's grace, able to record through being inspired by the Holy Spirit and then passed down to local churches. They were entrusted with that. With the early church in Acts, what they do? They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
and they were given the Holy Spirit by which they were empowered for service and that they might be changed into the image of Christ. And by and large, the disciples were faithful. And now we seek to remain faithful to some of these same areas of responsibility that we have before the Lord. We want to be part of God's commission to take the gospel to the nations. That's why we pray for missionaries every Sunday. So that we might pray that the Lord would bless their endeavors. So we want as a church to be involved in this, this commission that Jesus has given to the apostles and, and the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of which Christ is the cornerstone. So we endure in this mission to take the gospel to the nations. And so we pray for our missionaries. We, we, we give so that we can financially support our missionaries. We try to find ways, if, if the Lord allows it, to, to get to the gospel, even in our own personal conversations. We, we, we join in this mission to spread the gospel. And we also want to be faithful in, in sound doctrine. right? Paul told Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard, for, heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. Guard the sound words, the good deposit that was in, entrusted to you. So we want to guard the truth by asking for God to give us the grace to cling to sound doctrine. David Pallison, and I've heard this phrase before, so maybe he's borrowing it, but he called the Bible, the anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers. False teaching comes. It seems to be attacking Scripture. Scripture wins. It's the, it's the anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers in every generation. There are those who will seek to undermine, to attack the authority of Scripture, yet God's Word withstands every attack. And so we want to hold fast to that. We want to hold fast to that good deposit that has been passed down to us. Cling to the body of teaching, right? Sometimes if you're reading the Bible, the New Testament, it says the faith. Sometimes it's talking about this, this core of doctrine that we want to cling to. It's sound teaching. It's biblical doctrine. And this is possible, by the way, in that text we read um, where Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, you need to do this by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It's possible because God is present with His people through the Holy Spirit. And He is able to keep us firm in the faith. And not only that, but we want to be faithful in our walk before the Lord as we, as we seek to walk in the Spirit, who again has been given to us to empower us to walk in selfless service and obedience to God. We want to be faithful in our walk. Faithful in our walk. Our bodies are not our own. We've been bought with a price, purchased by the blood of Jesus. So we seek to put off sexual sin. We seek to put off things like greed, outbursts of anger, lying, gossip. And we seek to put on, again, because we've been bought by Jesus, put on honesty, tender hearts, kindness, mercy, conviction, forgiveness. For us this morning, we, we hope to be found faithful. We hope to be found faithful. We want to en encourage one another 
and to push one another and to build one another up as we speak the truth of God's word to one another so that we might hear, well done, good servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the commendation of the faithful. The faithful steward who did well with what is entrusted to him is commended by Jesus. Well done. But it's not just the faithful that are evaluated. It's not just the faithful that are accountable. It's not just the faithful who have to stand before the master, the nobleman, Jesus. Our last point this morning is simply that all will be held accountable. All will be held accountable. Look there in verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Some might scoff at the text and say, well, I don't accept this position of being accountable to God. I don't consent to this. I would never serve a God who, who judges, who condemns. Really, you know, those sort of statements are beside the point. Because we don't, we don't actually get to make that judgment. We are not the standard by which we're measured. We don't get to say, I'm not accountable to God. God has the right and exercises the right to hold all accountable and to judge them. And as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has been appointed this judge. In Acts 17, it says, He has fixed a day on in which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. wonder who that is. Well, how do we know? And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Who gets to be the judge? Who's appointed judge that on one day He will judge every man? The one who was resurrected. He's been appointed judge. And so with that understanding that, that God, by virtue of being God, by virtue of His holiness, His altogether separateness, by virtue of the fact that He is creator and sustainer of all things, He has the right to hold everyone accountable. And so with that said, as we move through this parable, we see there's essentially three, three different types of people. First, we see the faithful. Right? We've, we've looked at these guys, these two guys. We've looked at the commendation that they receive. 
They're not only given verbal praise, but they are richly rewarded. You know, the nobleman goes away, far country, receives the kingdom. He returns to rule, and he distributes some of this responsibility to his servants. You've done well. You've been faithful. You rule over ten cities. You've done well. You rule over five cities. The faithful revealed by their obedience that they, were, they respected their master. They respected the nobleman, and they were richly rewarded for it. But again, we pointed out earlier that, oh no, this is, this is not that, sorry. <laughs> the reward is, is this, greater responsibility. You, you were faithful, so here's a, another chance to serve. Here's another way you might exercise opportunity. So what is Jesus setting out to teach? For those who serve faithfully in this, this intervening Time for those who serve faithfully as they await his return, knowing that it is a privilege and not a burden to serve the Lord. They are rewarded with greater opportunity to serve, greater opportunity to obey God in that sense by exercising authority that's been granted to them. Now, again, I, in context, it's, it's the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom that is in view here. So it's not, it's, it's not the application of this text, say, well, you've done really well in the nursery, let's make you the nursery director, right? That's not, that's not what we're saying. We've got a great nursery director. This is, this is looking forward to the return of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, and although we, we don't get a ton of details sketched in for us in the New Testament, but we are assured that it's the Father's good pleasure to give the kingdom to the faithful, that we will rule and reign with Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that you will judge men? You'll judge angels? So somehow this this authority is exercised in, in the kingdom as reward. And when the king comes back, What's he going to do? He's going to evaluate the faithfulness of his servants. Each of them. We don't get recorded here that all ten of them came, but that's why he called them all. And this should actually motivate believers to be faithful. This idea that we, we will stand before Christ should motivate us to be faithful. We should seek to please and glorify God. Because we all must appear, Paul says in Corinthians 5, if we make it our aim to please Christ. Why? Because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the only motivation. Right? We're motivated by love for God, by His grace towards us. He's demonstrated mercy for us. So in response to this kindness and this love and this mercy, yeah, we should be motivated to please God. There's lots of reasons to remain faithful, but one of them is we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So remain faithful. There's a second group that's mentioned in our text. We might call them the false professors, not as instructor, but one who professes something. The false professor, he's there in verse 19, or verse 20. Then another came 
saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. This, this guy's described, interestingly, here he's described as a, another. He's, that word is to, to, to distinguish him from the first and the second. You might accept, expect Luke to say, and then a third came. He says, no, this is another, another of a different sort, a different kind. We're going to expect a different outcome from this guy. He's not like the two who preceded him. He didn't do what the nobleman asked. He put the money in a handkerchief, which is actually quite careless. Part of the issue with this guy is he, he thought that he got to decide what to do with what was entrusted to him. I don't have to do what the king asked. I'll just sort of, uh, I heard the instruction, but I'll just sort of do my own thing. Again, we don't get that prerogative. What faithfulness is, is determined by someone outside of us, by the Lord. This third servant doesn't get to decide what's the best way to handle the money. He was given the money and told to do business with it. And he didn't. And his reasoning is is interesting. He was afraid because of the severity of the king. He describes the king as a cutthroat dealer, a strict administrator, taking what he has not earned. So what does he do? He simply hides the money. This guy, he failed to respond properly to the king. So he's not commended as faithful. He's described as wicked. He's a wicked servant. He's in a completely different class as the two faithful. You got the faithful, you got the wicked. And the king actually takes his words and turns them against him and points out the man's folly. Now, this is a difficult text, obviously, about severity and you steal. And, well, what's going on here? I. I I think that the clue is in that phrase where he takes the man's words and uses them against him. He condemns him with his own words. I don't think he's necessarily taking on the title himself as a, as a thief and a wicked ruler in a severe, in a sinful way. He's not a cutthroat dealer who takes money and crops from those that don't belong to him. I think we see in the way that he handled the first two that this third guy just doesn't understand the king. He doesn't know the king. He's misrepresenting the nobleman. He's not in relationship with him. He doesn't obey him, so he doesn't respect him the way the first two did. And he doesn't receive reward, he receives condemnation. So the nobleman takes his, his words and uses them to condemn him. If you're right about me, you should have obeyed. He points out the folly of the man. You say I'm severe, but you have not obeyed? That doesn't make sense. If I'm so severe, you should have put the money in the bank and at least earned a little bit of interest. And if you're wrong in your assessment, you've offended me, insulted me, and you still failed to do what I ask you to do. So who is this, this guy? Though he was accounted 
among the servants in the beginning. He was one of the ten. He demonstrates by the end, in the, in the way he's treated by the nobleman, that he is not truly a servant. What he had was taken from him and it was given to the faithful. Again, in a similar parable in Matthew 25, a guy in a similar situation is cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. He's called wicked. I think, I think Jesus is distinguishing him from the faithful servants. He's a tear among the wheat, so to speak. He has some level of identif- identification with the faithful. He seems to be fitting in with the faithful. He seems to be a true servant, but ultimately he's not. He's not faithful to the king. He does not know the king. He does not obey the king. He does not serve the king. And so that's why I called him a false professor. Because by all accounts, initially he looks like he's in the family of servants. He appears to be on par with the other two, but in the end it's revealed that he was not. He was revealed to be unfaithful and wicked. So, I think Jesus is warning us that it's possible to be tied or or to be close to the family of God, to be close to the household of God, to be associated with it in some way, maybe even have responsibility in the household of God, and in the end to not be found faithful. It is possible to profess Christ, to be baptized, to become a member of the church, and we try to be really careful about this. People probably think we're overboard on membership. That's a, it's, it's because we're trying to be really careful. Why do, why do we have to do a member interview? Why do we have to share the gospel? Why do we have to demonstrate we know, know the gospel? Because we're trying to be careful. It's possible to profess Christ, be baptized, become a member, fool everyone around you, maybe even fool yourself, and to be revealed on the last day as one who's been unfaithful. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I do not know you. And I know this is, this is hard and it creates all sorts of questions in, in people's minds and my fears. We come across a text like this and we say things like this, is that it's the wrong people that are going to feel the weight of that. It's the wrong people that are going to feel condemned and it's the one who needs to hear it that sit confidently there and say, I think I'm good to go. I think I've been faithful. So let me encourage you to to look to Christ. If you hear that and you're confused and you wonder and you're, you're condemned, look to Christ. Let it push you toward Him. He is able to sanctify you. He is faithful to complete what He began in you. But let the warning sit for those who obey by way of eye service. The reality is that for anyone who's comfortable in sin, not fighting it, not hating their sin, characterized by sin, then there's every reason to wonder, am I in Christ? And you, You too must look to Christ. Turn to Him. The last group we have is 
the hostile. We saw those enemies of mine, the nobleman said. These are those who are hostile to the king. We first heard about them there in verse 14. Right, where they sent a delegation to the far country right behind the nobleman so that they could appeal to the authority and say, don't let him be the king. We don't want him to rule over us. Right? And we mentioned Archelaus earlier and all that history. That actually happened. The, the Jewish people sent a delegation and said, we don't want him. Don't let him rule over us. And so Jesus mentions the third category of people, those who are outright hostile to the king. Um, as Jesus speaks, there's religious leaders planning his demise. Right? So this is, seems like a reference to those in Israel who have seen the king and rejected the king. Jesus came into his own, John says, and his own received him not. There's a delegation who say, we don't want him to rule over us. We don't want this king. And into the gospel, or into the book of Acts, you see as the gospel begins to spread, that there are those outside of Israel who are revealed to be hostile to Jesus. Jesus warned his disciples, they will hate you because of me. We see it throughout history. We've seen it in the world today, and we see it growing, this hostility even in our own country, and we should not be surprised by that. Sometimes we think, man, if I could just be nice enough, they'll like me. It's not, it's not always that easy. And Jesus warns here that there will be a swift and immediate judgment upon his enemies. Those who reject him are rejected in the end. This is a graphic and vivid picture of God's judgment in verse 27. But for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We read that text last night as a family. When I read verse 27, one of my boys goes, geez. And that's right. Geez is right. This is a scary passage for those who reject Christ. But implied in the warnings is a call to turn a call to repent, a call to embrace Him. This should motivate non-Christians to turn to Him, to be saved from the judgment that is to come. God has commanded all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from self-indulgence, to turn away from self-centeredness, to turn away from sin and to embrace Christ and call upon Him as the only name under heaven by which we might be saved. You know, as we look at verse 27, we, we want to look away. We want to sort of force that out of our mind, but as we consider the severity of God's judgments, remember, we're just a few miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus is a day's journey from walking into Jerusalem. And when, he's, when he gets there, he didn't do verse 27 yet. Not yet. It's not time for verse 27. 
Remember, there's this interval of time between what Jesus will do in Jerusalem and the judgment described for us there in verse 27. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, when he walks into Jerusalem the first time, does not slaughter his enemies, but he is slaughtered for his enemies. They were expecting Jesus to walk in and and slaughter everyone that was against them. And and they actually weren't ready for that. They didn't actually want that. They wouldn't have survived that. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem like a lamb led to the slaughter, laying down his very life for his enemies. The judgment owing to us fell on Jesus at the cross. He bore the wrath of God in his body, taking the condemnation, the judgment that you and I both deserve. Dying for the ungodly, dying for the sinner, dying for his enemy. Some would die for a righteous person, Paul says. Maybe even for a good person. But Jesus laid down his life for his enemies so that they might become sons and daughters. There are three types of people in this world. But the same response, I think, is demanded of all three. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He's the faithful one who bore your sin. He's your king. To the faithful, he's your king. Look to him. Remain faithful to him. To the false professor, look to Christ. He knows your heart. You can lay down your self-righteousness. You can embrace him. And you can be cleansed of your son. And to the hostile enemy, look to Christ. He bore the wrath of God. And he will eventually judge those who reject him. So let's look to Jesus. Let's pray.